Hello and welcome to the Academy Podcast. Hello, <laughs> everyone. No, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go on. Who are we? Uh, I'm, I'm afraid to talk now because <laughs> you're just gonna. My name is Jeremy Hiss. And my name is Austin Parenti. Woo! And we are back. We um, are back. Yes. So things got a little busy. Quick update. I had a child. No, I'm kidding. That didn't happen. <laughs> but that would be a good excuse. Yeah. So the real excuse would be that, uh, unfortunately, my grandfather passed away um, three weeks ago. And so I've just kind of been struggling with that. Um, and then um, I had a change of career. So I am now working in education, um, just like Austin, except I'm working in higher education. So I'm in lower education. <laughs> Primary schooling. Yes, but but we are, uh, I speak on behalf of our viewers and our friends, of course. We are sorry to hear about your grandfather, but we're also super excited for you with this new career opportunity that's, um, you're going to do, you're going to do wonderful things. And I'm very excited to see where this all leads. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and as a also a quick heads up, um, I will be leaving for Air Force basic training um, a few months from now. So plenty of content to put out. So just be on the lookout for that. That there may be a, a lapse um, in the recordings coming up. So onto the book. <laughs> it's just it's just so good to be back. <laughs> you know. Um, and so we're here, uh, coming up on the end of the Republic here, we're in this section that, um, you know, I was actually wondering, I was like, I remember talking about the different types of governments in the Republic, hence, you know, kind of the name. And I was like, oh man, I, maybe that was a different book. But here we are, we actually did arrive at that part and I was pleasantly surprised. Um, so, so Plato's plan here uh, in response to a question, he is going to diagnose um, four other types of governments, uh, different types of societies outside of the one that he's already described, his utopia. Right. He's going to describe those four, um, and he's going to show kind of their weaknesses and their, their fault lines. And, um, and by doing that, by showing the negative, it, it is supposed to strengthen his argument for the positive for his society. Um, and inevitably, this section will wrap up and bring us back to the question of justice, which I feel like we've, there were so many tangents that, that we've departed from that in a way. Of course, everything's building back to it, but we, he will finally go back and say, and so, as was initially questioned, here is our, um, um, our response to that first question about is, is it truly beneficial to, um, to behave in a just way or an unjust way? Is that fair? Yeah, essentially. Um, I would I would only point out that it, it was kind of like there are different tangents, as you put it. There's there's different um, trails that they kind of went on um, that didn't seem to necessarily relate. But as you said, in building up that utopian society, Plato was introducing his virtue ethics and demonstrating that uh, justice is something to be pursued in and of itself not not necessarily in a deontological sense where like there's rules that you need to follow because they are rules and not in a consequentialist bit where where we we follow justice because it produces good outcomes but rather he was demonstrating um he was trying to demonstrate actually 
he kind of sidesteps Thrasymachus's question in the beginning, right? Because the conversation is, well, does does it pay more to be unjust, essentially, right? So then he wanted to sh- he he took a step back and then in engaging in dialectic, he said dialectic, we have to we have to define what is justice. And so essentially, this whole like everything from book two to now has been defining the very the very conception of justice in Plato's mind which has been inner psychic harmony, right? Of the soul, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. So, and, and so he did that through demonstrating, blowing it up to the city scale and then coming back down to the individual. And so that's kind of the surmising of, of what has occurred. Obviously there's stuff about the forms and the cave and all that gets thrown into there. All that is important, but that's, that is like the one sentence like summary, right? So now we have to return to the original question because now we're at the very end of the book. Um, only thing after this is theory of art um, which um, I guess you would be excited about because you're an artist. Yeah, and then, I like painting. And then, and then we have the myth of Ur, which is like, or Air, or whatever, E-R. And so that is weird, more metaphysical, religious kind of stuff. So Ooh. yeah, it's going to be interesting. But here, he's going back to the original question of, does justice pay more? Is it is justice, you know, beneficial essentially over injustice? And so that's why he's now engaging in this section because we've now defined what justice is and now we have to go back and actually answer the question. So this is supposed to be like the big wrap up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get into it, but uh, it's excellent. Little, yeah. So a few things that we're going to want to look for. I don't know that we want to spend our full time together just going over those four different governments. Um, I'm not sure that that would be as beneficial as spending more time on uh, the conclusion itself. Yes. Wow. <laughs> right. You're you, because this is why I love you. It's brilliant. Drop it. Yeah. I mean, if you want, I could just hit a really quick. Yeah. And then yeah. You can kind of just yeah. bounce off me. Sure. Maybe. So, so first kind of question is like the, the first, I think it, it is important to, to mention this. Um, we must consider the time and place in which Plato lived. Right. So when he's Always. describing these governments, um, we can't think of it as we would think of it. Um, so when I was reading, particularly the democracy section, right. he's living in an Athenian democracy. But you had also said that even the democracy he's describing there isn't super accurate. So right. can you can you give us the the survey of these types of governments, um, and um, and then I guess the historical relevance or or what they looked like in his time versus ours? I feel like it's hard to understand something like democracy when our only lens for it is 21st century democracy. You know? Right, which is completely unlike what the Athenians would have been experiencing. Um, okay, so really quick. So for those of you who don't know, in this section, Plato's continuing with the city-soul parallel, right? So that's that's the theme that Austin and I have been kind of running with as we've been talking about this, is that you have the city, and the construction of the city is supposed to match up with the construction of the individual soul. So, so as to say that, you know, you have... You have your three parts of the city, which then have their corresponding three parts in the soul. You have, you know, the guardians, which are at the head, uh, which are reason, the philosopher kings, the middle part, which are uh, obviously the military guardians. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they embody spirit, um, courage, valor, honor. Thumos. Yeah, the Thumoetis. And then, and so you have your logos, the Thumoetis, and then you have the demotica, which is the lower bronze class. Um, which are the various pleasures and, and, and things are well ordered and put in the right place. then the city correspondingly will also be harmonious uh, in pursuing that, which is the common good essentially and have a cohesive social fabric. So 
the the main the so we enter in a problem right away because he wants to continue in that city soul parallel but however plato doesn't make it clear that uh um, how do we devolve from the utopian republic that he has established and then into the other forms of government? Because what he's essentially trying to do is that Plato is going to establish a form of governance that once again corresponds with the with a particular part of the soul. But it he's supposing that this this government or this state is not harmonious, right? So he, he's basically saying, okay, well, let's imagine that the spirited part rules in the society and it is not reason that rules, right? And then, so mm-hmm. this is the society that we're going to get. And so what he'll do is that he'll say, here, here is the government and this is what the government looks like. This is what the state is going to look like. And then he says, and this is what the character of the individual right. in that state is going to More look like. More deductive, going top down. Right, exactly. <laughs> However, that doesn't really make any sense because <laughs> because right off the bat, right, we don't know how things devolve. He never establishes that. Secondly, he never, like, we're individuals, right? So, like, he, so how to say, he never has to deal with the question of, and this is something that Juliana says that I really like, um, that she says that he never has to deal with the question of a just man living in an unjust society, Right. He, yes. because we only know the just man in the context of his perfect republic mm-hmm. in that establishment. But like, imagine in 21st century America, we don't yeah. get to, you know, in any of these societies, how would the individual just man operate? He only, he only establishes this dichotomy of city soul parallel where you have the unjust society and then the unjust man. And so it, that corresponds with that particular state. And so that, that ends up becoming an issue, but, I'll explain that away a little bit later, but we'll just get into it now. Um, so those are the two problems that we're entering right away. And so, well, first, when you talk about how it would devolve, are you, he does mention in between each, you know, from going from an oligarchy to a democracy, he kind of gives you like this metaphorical family unit. Where, right, right. The father. So I, I thought that was pretty. Af- son. I mean, I'm a story guy. So like, I thought that was pretty effective. Like, yeah, I could see how. Uh, one extreme would make the next generation swing to the other. Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. It's or? it's not it's nice because he, he, once again we're going to that emphasis on education, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, okay, you're not raising your son in the right manner to to grow up after you know after his father. What I mean is that initial break. From how do, yeah, exactly. Thing. Going okay. into the 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 first imperfect society, how do you like? How does that even occur? He mm-hmm. he's just like it just happens, you know. Well, he said something about like when you're. Uh, when there's like wrong interbreeding because you can't get right. the timing right. Right. You know? He's like, yeah, because if, if you have it where somebody who is actually belonging in the bronze class going into the gold, right. that's where that's the inciting action. But again, how that how do you happens, exactly it doesn't it just goes just on chance, and on. Yeah. I guess or pretty much. Pretty um, much. Because we don't okay. what essentially what we don't know, the the real question here is that is the Republic something achievable? Because Plato kind of is fuzzy on that, right? Because he says he says like he says yeah. something where, well, it exists beyond us, right? He has that kind of line where he's like, well, it exists out there, perhaps. Yeah, it is and laid so up it, as a pattern in heaven at the right. very end. Which is really beautiful because we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. Like, go ahead and ask me that question at the end of this episode. Fine. And, and so that would be really cool. But the but it does, it's very unclear. So the first state that we get into is the Timocratic state um, or Timarchy. Based on Sparta, right? It's not. There's no. There's no modern state that we would I was gonna really. Ask. Yeah, that we would have. I guess there was one that was like a. There was one African 
country that kind of was like it was uh it was a mainly white population in africa that kind of i don't know it would kind of be along those lines i forget what the name of it is but is the thumos led could we say right okay mm-hmm. it's led by the spirit it's the warrior state uh, right. of sparta essentially that's the most apt comparison that we have of it and so just really just really quick essentially um you'll have you'll have it where the desire of private property personal wealth personal ambition start to creep in right mm-hmm. and so however he claims that it is pursued in it is pursued in uh in private and then in public it is all about you know honor and valor um and uh and so what you find is that they're not necessarily rule like they still have they still hold to the principles of old of the old utopian republic state they still pay lip service to that in public um, because they they're going after you know just the statements of their fathers. However, the the problem is is that they don't have the in, in the intellect and the and the hmm. and the I guess you could say the inner the inner means to pursue to pursue those ends. And so what ends up happening is that they instead make it all about military prowess and and honor in battle. Uh, as being the public virtues to be pursued, right? And then which determines your worth or your goodwill. Um, and so, however, uh, it, it privately you'll be pursuing your own wealth. And that's actually what kind of killed Sparta. So like when really? Sparta, yeah. So after so after Sparta defeated Athens in the Peloponnesus War, um, what ended up happening was that, uh, you know, it had grown to such to such a greater stature in Greece. And then what ended up happening is that the the actual Spartan class, which did not allow for like they didn't even allow them to wear any sort of jewelry. There was no makeup. You could not own you could not own anything of 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 uh, like of a material status that started to creep into the society. And then eventually Sparta became weakened by that. It did not hold the same um the same the same military cohesiveness um after the introduction of those the that right because a society like this could really only function as long as they're united and they have less of an idea of the self and more of the collective right which is exactly what he built his perfect plato built his perfect society to be right one where you put the needs of the state before the needs of yourself almost not the i wouldn't say the state um I'm I'm really particular about the terms sure, of political philosophy, yeah. but like it, it wouldn't be the state. It's 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 your I guess your countrymen. Like he would say that. Like you remember he was said that you know we it's like a hand like to the body. It's like it no the entire right. body rushes to that part, and so it's like he would say that real virtue of inner virtue it creates an uh, uh, upwelling and an outpouring of yourself to those around you to the point that as you engage in whatever your particular skill or craft may be like however as you perfect yourself in that end you're always very cognizant and conscious of the fact that you have a responsibility and a duty not to state because that's some sort of government but rather to your your brothers and your sisters like your community community. your your yeah your immediate community and so it's and it's all about right pursuing that that common good right this conception of the common good which we'll we'll visit again and i think in other pieces of literature um and so correspondingly really quick the 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 character obviously i kind of said it it's it's the public pursuit of honor um and so and i wrote this public pursuit of honor gives justification for the private private pursuit of wealth and office the timarchic character fails to pursue any notion of the common good since his ideals are inadequate (laughs) and eventually devolves into the pursuit of money um and so 
he um, so he's called to those higher pursuits of reason by the father. However, he doesn't. Uh, he's just more fond of military exercise sure. um, and prowess. It's almost like simpler. Yeah, he hasn't simpler. Been educated to because we would say that because we would say that uh, you know if you're not somebody of like great like ver- like of great. Mm, virtue i guess of like like if we imagine the philosopher who's very humble who's very sure. wise and kind and giving of himself and and you know we would say that's like ultimately good we go oh, okay that's the, a great man right mm-hmm. but then we wouldn't say the the military man who's very proud of his nation and, and fights well and fights honorably and like holds to those we would say that is a kind of virtue right it is not obviously the ultimate kind but we would still say he is better than than the miser right mm-hmm. or like some corporate sure. man who's just who's just in the pursuit of money so he's somewhere in between right a little off the mark gotcha and then that that one would degrade into oligarchy once once that temptation for money um, increases right. and um, so help help me understand. Do we have a modern parallel for oligarchy? The United States. Okay. <laughs> I, I didn't. I wasn't sure. I didn't want to sound stupid, but I, as I was reading that, I'm like, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's hard. It's there's no there's no real one to one comparison. You know, I I would you know I would say that uh you know, uh, you can say. Mm, I guess post Soviet Russia, 1991, 1992, um, with uh, what they called uh, electroshock therapy um, for the Russian <laughs> right. economy. Um, that uh, when they blew off the lid and just made it open free market, they just created this massive gap between the two. Well, yeah, and and so maybe that's the difference between America and a, and a perfect oligarchy is like we have a middle class. When he was describing the oligarchy, it sounded way more like there's rich and there's poor. Right. And well, and I mean, of course, people today would claim that like there's a disappearing middle class and then sure. there's that's that's an ongoing debate that I don't really want to enter into it. But <laughs> fair, but but fair. I mean, statistically speaking, and just by data, just pure data, that doesn't really pan out the way I see it is that there's still a middle class. Now, whether it's disappearing is a different discussion, but there's still a middle class. Okay. There's, and then there's there's gradations of wealth that exist in the United States. But however, we can when you read this section, you can kind of be like, well, there are kind of some similarities. And I think there's definitely some truth to that, especially when we get into the oligar- oligarchic character. Yeah, I think that's where the similarities start to come into play. So the, the prime thing with the oligarchy is, is simply put, their primary the value is money. The love of so money. we've gone from value of the common good to value of um, like ambition and spirit and courage to right. the value of money. Right. And so I, I, think, I think most people don't need to see an argument there. It makes sense. That is a degradation. We, we, we can commonly agree that money as your primary value is worse than both the preceding two. Right. Right. So then when you get into when you get into oligarchy, what ends up happening is that you have this widening gap between the rich and the poor as you know, they he talks about giving out loans and then you keep people in yeah, debt. Yeah, that was weird. And then so but then but remember that when we're talking about public virtues and what you value as a society that determines who decides to rule in that society. Mm-hmm. And that's really poignant as a political point, because then that makes us reflect what kind of values do I engender as an individual or in my community? What kind of values do I do I see in my life? And then how does that affect who I put in positions of power and authority? And I think once you look at it that way, it, you know, you start to get a little self-conscious, right? <laughs> yeah. So then, so, but I'll leave that, I'll let that lie. Um, so what ends up happening is that that public virtue of, of wealth becomes 
what is known as goodness, right? And so therefore, who is good in quotations is now in power because we always want the best of us to be in power. Well, the best of us being the rich and the rich are now in power. And so it narrows, for Plato, it narrows out um, exactly who is going to be placed in in those positions. That was was the part too that I was like, oh, because he mentions those people in power would want to secure their their power and their money and so they would start to create laws like you must be a landowner in order to like participate right. in politics and i was like oh wasn't that part of our history at right. one point too yes it is and then didn't that get dethroned and how fitting that the next section is democracy right and so so his his transition there was that that widening gap between the rich and the poor would eventually lead to just a, clean, a revolution bloody revolution yeah right? pretty much yeah, um, exactly Exactly. And we've seen that many times. Attempted, failed, and attempted, succeeded. Right. Um, uh, but then his his criticism of democracy, this is where I think we need to take a pause for a second. Sure. We need to, I think we all understand what our democracy looks like today. What did it look like back then? And how is that different from what he is particularly depicting? Or is he perfectly depicting Athenian democracy? When Not at all. Not okay. even close. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I mean, we see, I mean, us. we all know that, like, we all know that Plato was very critical of democracy, um, particularly of Athens. Because um, Socrates died by democracy. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> and so the so you end up going from this character of so we'll talk about just the politics of this. So we've already have a we have a disunified soul in the oligarchy. It's the pursuit of money above all things. Um, people are upset, angry. You have inefficiencies that come in because there's no longer a specialization in the economic order. You're not pursuing a particular craft or end to yourself. It's just the pursuit of wealth. So all that is broken down. And so now he blows off the lid, right? So it's complete liberty. Everybody's pursuing their own ends. And so um, it's the greatest degree of diversity, right? So that's that's kind of where the criticism comes into him for for him, where he says – you know, that greatness of diversity and everybody pursuing their own end. He's like, that's fine if you want to get by, right? As, as a, as a, uh, as a, um, as a society of, of just many different individuals. But however, um, in order to have this notion of the common good, you all have to, you, everybody has to pursue like a common end. However, in a democracy, you can't do that because everybody's just complete license, complete liberty. Yeah, because so, the value is freedom itself, right? which is going to send you in totally different directions correct, from your neighbor. Correct, rather than having that freedom be subservient to some higher order of things. Mm-hmm. So to talk about historical accuracies, however, so in Athens, it wasn't complete license at all. You know, so there were... You know, you had to be a citizen to actually vote in order to be a citizen. Your parents had to be citizens and you had to be born into a citizen family. So it was hereditary. Um, there were other there were other cases in where you could gain citizenship. However, that had to be granted to you. Not everybody could vote because it took a while for you to travel into Athens in order to participate in the vote. The voting was wild. It was rambunctious. People were shouting, stomping their feet, throwing things. It was it was, <laughs> you know, there was. And I mean, we're not and we're not talking about a society like ours where like like I think in the United States we do have complete license to basically our thing is live and let live like do whatever you want in the privacy of your home just don't bring it into mine right that's kind of our motto here mm-hmm. um, at least in modern day America however in Athens women were not allowed to you know be going outside and engaging in conversation in the marketplace people would be run out for all their their various beliefs I mean Socrates was killed right just for teaching like we didn't they did not allow 
just those variances of opinion. So it's not like it, it wasn't a, a society of of of, com, of complete license and liberty and people pursuing their own. And Athens was we would see Athens as I mean, only men could vote as well. Like I said, it it it, it was uh, it was a pretty rigorous. You know, they had a conception of uh, of what they of of certain co- cultural norms that they wanted to continue to enforce. Um, that it wouldn't be this what the state that he's kind of describing of like, well, we just blow the lid off. Everybody do what you want. It's all by revolution. We would see a pretty um, um, we would see a pretty what we would call conservative um, society in Athens, even though it was a, a, a total democracy, a, you know, um, a pure democracy um, just by vote. But even then it was still strictly controlled of who was doing the voting. Um, and so. And even then, and, and when he gets into the democratic character, obviously, so the corresponding character to the state would be one who is compulsive, spontaneous, uh, uh, capricious, um, and just fulfilling their immediate desires. So not even like the pursuit of money. There's no common end. It's just whatever they want at the time, right? So they may be pursuing the virtuous goods in one, in one second and then pursuing money in another and then being prowess in battle. So he, uh, he oscillates between all these different desires and there's no one ruler Athens, that was definitely not the case whatsoever. Um, you know, they couldn't have built the empire that they built if that was the case. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it just doesn't, it doesn't completely wash together. However, it does, it does highlight and illustrate his point, I guess. Um, but even then you run into problems because when we're talking about, you know, a, a, a state with complete license. It goes back to what I was saying before. You could technically have a just person within a democratic society. And also, uh, we have never really seen a democratic society of what he's talking about, even in the United States and just modern Western civilization today, where we have I, in the greatest amounts of liberties in all of human history, I would say. Um, um, we still don't see you don't really see uh, uh, something of the nature that what he's discussing right now. I mean, we're probably closer <laughs> to <laughs> right. that now than he was in Athens. Um, but uh, still, it doesn't. Uh, it the conception doesn't necessarily line up completely. Gotcha. Okay, that's helpful. So we then uh, pretty quickly run into the final category, the final type, um, and he calls it tyranny. And this is when. Um, it seems like some other type of revolution takes place. A right. champion of the people um, takes over, and uh, circumstances. I don't. I don't really remember exactly what leads to it. Uh, but I think he kind of makes it a point. It's. It's once you hit this exhaustion of liberty, just like there was an exhaustion period of greed. Um, right. Extreme liberty leads to extreme uh, tyranny, essentially extreme autocracy, like. It's just that's what he says is the natural way of things in which we finally, like you said, they're exhausted. Like we need to like we need to put order in the society. And so we elevate the best among us to to then lead, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, a man of the people, a hero. Right. You know, and and because basically what he says is that like there are like victim groups that are created in which like people are victimized by others and, and people are tra- trampling on each other's freedoms. And then so to put an end to that chaos. A ty- mm-hmm. like a tyrant comes into power right and and i think we're familiar enough with with the idea of a tyrant and what that looks like we we've all heard the stories of julius caesar and the various kings and stuff but essentially it's it's a very um 
politically bloody um controlling era yes um, yes you yes. of course he even mentions having like a secret police force right he does. <laughs> i'm mm-hmm. like oh wow yeah, yeah that, that is a common theme of tyrants um and there's a reason for that uh because they need to secure their power um and and squash the the who would be rebel the would-be rebels um and so this this tyrannical king is the complete opposite of our philosopher king. And that's why I think he ends here, right? It's because now we can really clearly see, okay, so so I've established my perfect society with my perfect rulers, and here's the most imperfect we can get. Right, the tyrant has absolutely no... So, it, okay, so a tyrannical society for him is not, is not like a... is not a state... is not a state under... it is a state under a tyrant, but he's describing a state being tyrannized. Right. So it has more to do with the fact that um, it's it's not really like rule by a tyrant because the Greek the Greek conception of tyrant was just a man who had all the power. One single man. So right? it was neutral. It wasn't right. It didn't. Okay. It, yeah. Like now we have a current conception of tyranny as being one that is what he's describing as bloodthirsty or oppressive. However, then the word was a neutral term, politically speaking. So so. He's more describing a, a tyrannized state rather than one of a state being ruled by a, t- a tyrant. Um, and so, however, it, you're right, is the complete devolution because the tyrant has absolutely no conception of the common welfare, the common good. Um, he, he, it, he is essentially what he's describing as self-destructive. He's just pursuing his own personal ends of maintaining power, and that is it. And that is it. And it just and it he's and it's blindly pursuing these own ends. And what he and what he calls those own ends is lust. That's how he that's how he define defines it. He's he's fighting to repress any gifted people like you're saying that could be that could rebel against him. And he describes him as as a sick man. Like he's mad and he's and he's fighting even though he is sick. Um, and it's and it's just and he's driven by this passion of lust of pursuing whatever his own personal end would be. And he's willing to just destroy all of his path and which is ending up to be self-destructive for himself. However, this is where the criticism comes in to this because that doesn't really make any sense either. Um, I, so I can see your face there. Like we are, yes, please, yeah, ex- please yeah. explain. So here's the thing is that uh, he's describing like a, a Caligula, you know what I mean? Um, however, the thing is, is that a tyrant is not able to keep power and maintain power if he's just a sick and self-destructive person. I mean, we can say that he's not pursuing the common good and we can say that he's just pursuing his own ends in accordance with his lusts. That's all well and good. But then he takes it a step farther by saying that, you know, oh, you know, he's mad and he's just, he's just consumed by his passions and he's destroying all in his path. And I'm like, no, a tyrant who's gained power is somebody who's savvy politically. Somebody who's able to maintain that is able to, he has a degree of intelligence to recognize who he needs to keep around him and who he doesn't. You know, they're bloody, yes, but I mean, when you look at like the Stalins and the Maos, these guys were were intelligent, they were ruthless, and they led boring lives, personally. They were, they no, really, they were boring. They were boring, like, what was Stalin before he came, before he became premier? He was, he was the secretary of the Communist Party. And that's what allowed him to gain all of his power. He was a boring bureaucratic man who wore gray and browns all the time. You know, it, he, and so, but it was that quiet, reserved, 
cold, calculating willingness to do what was necessary to maintain that the 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 wild Caligula is not going to last too long, especially if we're describing him as a sick man. He will lose that battle, mm-hmm. you know. So that's when you're kind of like, well, that, does that really match up? No, not in a practical sense. But then even then, like on a philosophical sense, going back to Thrasymachus's question, this is my big critique of the tyr- the tyranny section is that we've been told that we're going to be shown how justice is better than injustice. Like, it just pays more, right? It doesn't pay to be unjust. It pays to be just. The tyrant he's describing, it pays to be unjust because he won. You know what I mean? He's now being able to pursue See. his own pleasures. Mm-hmm. It's not he he's able to he, he he's basically gets what he wants. And that's Thrasymachus's point. If you go all the way back to book one, Thrasymachus is like, it's it's the strong over the weak, man. Like that's all it's about. And you know what? It pays to be unjust. It pays because you're going to be able to get what you want. You're going to be able to pursue your own ends. You're going to be able to hold power if you're unjust, if you're wily, you're savvy and you're crude and you're cunning. Well, guess what? Plato just says, yeah, yeah, you can actually. And so, but, but to be fair, he makes the point that yes, you will be able to fulfill those, those pleasures that you're seeking, but will they leave you with a deeper, truer happiness? Right. And that's, and that's no. what gets into the next section actually. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing is that, so when we go into the next section, when we start to talk about pleasures, Plato was not asked to prove to us, um, once again, going back to book one and, and, trying to, and trying to tie this all together, he was not asked to prove that justice was pleasurable, but rather it just led to a happy, fulfilling life. But now he's talking about it in terms of pleasure, so it becomes consequentialist. He's saying that you need, like, being just is not, is, so like, at least in the original, like the middle books, he was saying being just is is something to, uh, good to be pursued on its own right mm-hmm. it's like health like you just it's it's necessary for right. you and so however now it's oh no no be just because it pays to be just there's a consequence to it it leads to pleasure yeah and it doesn't see that, that doesn't it doesn't it, it it doesn't rub up well together because then what happens is, is that when you enter into that what he just established in the tyranny is that no it just pays to be unjust and then, but what you're saying is, is that your point is that, however, it's not, it's not the right kind of pleasure. Like it's, it, it's disordered. Right. There are, there are higher pleasures, but then when we get into these other sections and here's the thing is that I could easily respond by saying, well, hold up, Austin, who are you to say, isn't pleasure a thing that is subjective? Like you like, <laughs> you like hot chocolate, you know, or like, let's just take beer. Like once again, going back to a beer <laughs> example. Yeah. So I like beer. You don't like beer. I think beer is pleasurable. I enjoy drinking nice beer, okay? And I find pleasure in that. And then are you to say that like, well, actually, Aaron, philosophy is a higher pleasure than beer. And I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> but that doesn't make beer less pleasurable for me. Yeah. And, and you know, you see what I mean? Like, Well, well what, so so I guess there is no escaping at, at a certain point. It is consequentialist. That's what you've been calling it. Meaning like, well, if you put the desire for money above the desire for reason, you will inevitably ruin your life and, and find dissatisfaction. So it has, I, I can't find a way to solve this without it eventually becoming, well, don't do this otherwise or do this because. Well, you can say, according to the earlier books, you can say, well, the pursuit of money is disordered, right? You can say, well, that is not good, mm-hmm. right? With a capital G and going back to those forms, right? It's yeah. not, it doesn't, it's not in accordance with the nature of things. Um, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm giving that a very broad stroke because I'm sure. not, I'm not going to go into all the terms. 
But here's the thing is that you, you, but you, but we're talking about pleasure specifically. So you can't say, you can't say, well, my pursuit of money is less pleasurable. I'm like, no, I find pleasure in it. You can right. say it's not a good, it's not the good to be pursuing, but you can't say it's less pleasurable. You see what I'm saying? There's yeah. a distinction there. So can you say, and, and we're a little outside the book at this point, I guess, because now it's just, uh, Oh no, we're still, philosophy. we're actually, we're still now in this next section. We'll, and we'll get into okay. Plato's response to all this, but can, can you say that long-term what is good is pleasurable? And what is bad is only immediately pleasurable. That's kind of what he's trying to say, right? Is mm -hmm. that is that well, justice produces happiness, and the happiness produces pleasure. But then you end up kind of in the same thing where it's like, well, even then you're still establishing a consequentialist ethic. Yeah. Where I'm like, okay, well, it doesn't. It like it pays in the short term, or well, then again, it wouldn't be wholly good because it should pay in the short term and the long term. I could argue, but then, but then the second thing would be like, it's still consequentialist it still doesn't fit with the middle books because you're still saying, okay, but in the, like in the long term, finally I'll be happy. It's like, okay, so still. So it's not just, I pursue, yeah, I pursue, right. I pursue justice now because I want, it's a long-term investment for me. So do you think personally, do you think he was wrong to establish, which one do you think is, is right? Consequentialist, uh, consequentialism or justice for the sake of justice. I'm not here to establish my personal opinions. Well, because because I'm curious, like, you know, obviously his two points are, are incompatible, but it's like, which one was is stronger to begin with? Oh, virtue ethics, most definitely. Because you don't want to, because consequentialist ethics, you eventually end up in, like, utilitarianism and things of that nature, right? So, you know, and that's not, that's obviously not, in, in terms of the body of his work, what Plato is going for it's just mm -hmm. this is like what i'm essentially saying is that these are weak arguments mm -hmm. these are inconsistent weak philosophical arguments that he's presenting at least in the city soul parallel dichotomies that he's establishing because what you see is that you have not only do you have societies that don't really practically make any sort of sense and and that <laughs> and, and also he's not he's not accounting for the fact that people are individual characters even in those societies right so right. it's like it's kind of silly to say like there's a direct one-to-one -one comparison but now you're kind of getting into, okay, well, he's answering a question. He's, he's basically falling into, like, Thrasymachus' argument by saying, like, oh, well, happiness leads to greater amounts of pleasure. And it's like, no, that's not what you were saying before. The whole point was to, like, basically reorder the definition, right? Mm -hmm. And then now we're just going back to the original definition of what we of what we were considering happiness or pleasure. To, like, happiness was pleasure, right? But we wanted to get away from that, that happiness was not pleasure. Right. It did. It wasn't Maybe he forgot. Maybe it took like Maybe a he long forgot. vacation between <laughs> these two. Books. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, probably, probably. I mean, there, there may be some truth to that. I'm not sure I would have to do some more research on that end, but, uh, but you know, it's, um, there's a lot more to be said mm -hmm. on this. And I think that I'm only establishing the weaknesses because I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go back and I'm going to destroy my arguments. So <laughs> Good. Don't worry Excellent. About that. Yeah. So then we turn into this, uh, this other section where I thought we were at the end of the chapter and I was like, Oh good. I did my reading for the month. Um, and then no, there were like 30 more pages, <laughs> um, but this was some really good stuff. Um, this is where he starts to work in the definition again and bring us back to the initial argument. We've already touched on it, um, a little bit, but, um, like I'm reading here in the, the editor's, uh, notes here, um, that he's now going to bring back in that threefold classification of the right, soul, right. um, and, and kind of pin those against each other so can you can you give us the 
the the summary of this kind of conclusion section or do you want to break it into parts or yeah so the first thing i would say is that he's saying that the philosopher is the one who's most capable of understanding pleasure um because he can he possesses these these three key things which which are um he has experience of all the pleasures he has the practical wisdom and he has the actual philosophical wisdom and so and he's able to kind of sit back and, and discern exactly what is pleasurable and what is not pleasurable so he's kind of establish establishing that like there there is an objective pleasure that exists um which like we we're kind of discussing before doesn't really vibe um and so but then it eventually gets into perhaps that there are higher pleasures than others and we'll get into that but so essentially what he's saying is that the philosopher has experiences, right? So as a person, he's able to experience, you know, the lo like the love of money or the pursuit of, of food or, or, you know, these other bodily pressures, pleasures. But then because of his practical experience, because the philosopher, we're imagining the philosopher king being an older gentleman, right? And, and, and but then has the pursuit of philosophy and has experienced all of life. He's able to sit back and say, you know what, these pleasures they're not really pleasures oh, you know the things that you're pursuing are not really good for you however these other things are what's right and that actually kind of makes sense right because we would say okay well i do look for mentors in my life i do look for advisors and counselors to come in and, and who are who should be older than me who have lived life and, and are much more well-read and much more intelligent than me to come in and say okay well you know i think that uh, your your love of of electronic dance music is probably not the best thing for you and I agree. And, and then and you should probably listen to classical music and here here are some here are some vinyls for you just here you go and try to you know just get into it and, and i think that would be more pleasurable for you and i think that's mm -hmm. there's some truth to that um that there are pleasures that are higher um when dr plaza was uh teaching us uh john stuart mill um he and uh utilitarianism he talked about how uh, uh mill would establish you know different pleasures um that and mill goes farther than plato but the 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 argument that he he used the example he said well do you think that uh well do you think that uh uh citizen kane is greater than the simpsons and it's like well yeah you know, i think, <laughs> I I think so. yeah i think citizen kane is better than the simpsons well this is the problem we're having today right in america where yes so, but anyway the the and so we say yes and so he's like that's what mill is talking about and plato's kind of in the same vein where it's like okay well obviously beethoven is better than is better than i don't know who um ed sheeran i hate ed sheeran there so yeah go. we can yeah, <laughs> it's perfect ed sheeran. um and so and then also he says that uh that our pleasures and pains are also but then this is where he gets kind of weird because if you look in your section it, it, it he starts to talk about how our pleasures and pains are just are just uh, are just matters of degree, and where we understand them in short and long term. Where it's like in the short term, I may say, "Oh, I don't want to go to the dentist; like that's going to be a pain." But then in the long term, I see that as a great pleasure because I'm like, "Oh, well, my teeth are clean, and I'm making sure that I don't have any cavities, and I have to go back and get fillings, or my teeth are going to fall out, or something right. like that." You know what I mean? So then he says that it they're in direct comparison that what we may feel currently and then we evaluate them based on the short term and the long term um and so that means that like how we view pleasure and pain are just mental states like they just change over time and that and then and then rest would be considered to be in between pleasure and pain and so 
and so there and then once again it goes back into that idea of things being in flux plato hates that like right, <laughs> right. so he's like oh if a thing is in flux where thing where something can be viewed as both a pleasure and a pain that means it is neither like a thing can't be both at one time so he's saying that well then that means that your conceptions of and this is where it gets really weird he says your conceptions of pleasures and pains are not really like truly pleasures or pains it's they they're not really like it's just that's just a that's just a feeling that you have about something it doesn't really make sense um and so and then and then following that logic then he says that since they're not really real right he says that uh that what we consume then is just a means of filling the body so like for example eating food like Oh, I, I, I want to eat food in the short term. That's going to that's going to satisfy me. Right. That's going to be pleasurable. And then you eat it and then he's like, OK, well, that's fine. But then if you ate too much of it, you may have gotten a stomach ache or whatever. And so, you know, that and then so there's a dichotomy of pleasure and pain that exists there or, mm -hmm. you know, that's a bad that's a pretty bad example. But we'll just run. with no, it. it. Yeah. And so. And so he's saying that, however, because it's not really a pleasure or a pain, it's like a state of flux that exists in your mind where you're just kind of considering these things. It, you are just, that means it's just consuming, the, it's just something that's satisfying your bodily needs. But the body for the Plato is not really the source of, of true pleasure or goodness or happiness, because he's gonna say that knowledge and reason, the pursuit of philosophy are something that is, that's like, you know, fulfilling, fulfilling reason, fulfilling the pleasures of the mind, fulfilling the pleasures of reason. Because remember, he says right, that just moving up the right. Exactly. The exactly. The, the mind. mind, the mind, the heart and the stomach all have uh -huh. their different pleasures. And he says that there are those higher pleasures. Going back to that original point, there are higher pleasures and then there are lower pleasures. Right. But now he's going to say that those lower pleasures are not actually even real. He's going to say that they're ah, they're in a state of flux. The higher pleasures are actually more real. Going back to forms, like saying exactly. Okay. Thank you, thank you. Because now, because <laughs> now I'm going to say okay. So going back to the forms, we said well the forms are predicated, right? We would say okay, what is f? Like what is f means that that it is it isn't truly f, mm -hmm. right? So a tree, like the form of of tree, would be would be something that is that is and truly is tree like in it's yeah. in the essence of what a tree yeah. is unpredicated right so it does not come from anything else it is just tree the essence of hmm. i know like we're going back well to... I, I have a metaphor that i thought of um just now because i've been working with these types of files all week but um in on a computer system for video editing i don't want my students editing the original copy of the footage so we create in editing what are called proxies. They're smaller bite-sized files that I can distribute to multiple computers that my students can kind of tamper with. And if they screw it up royally, they have not altered the original files. So when Plato's kind of talking about the forms, it's almost as if every tree on earth is pulling from the original, but they're just proxies. Yeah. They're not the core heart of it. I thought of that. I was like, oh, that, that helps me understand the forms a little little better right anyway sorry <laughs> but then going back into going but you know i want to get away from the tree discussion like and more into like you know what is you know what is like i use the example what is large right so mm -hmm. large yeah, is, is what is and truly large you know unpredicated you know that is what it is um it is the essence of what is large it doesn't it's not it's not a it's not a state of conception of what is large in comparison to other things that are big or small because that's a state of flux the same thing with our pleasures right it's the same it's literally a one-to-one -one argument like you just said so then with that being with that being said uh, plato is going to say that uh, that however these pleasures these higher pleasures are not in a state of flux 
you know they are they are true you know the pursuit of, of philosophy and wisdom however that doesn't make any sense because we can't say uh, yeah i know because we can't say that knowledge like knowledge that is knowledge is more truly knowledge you can't like say you see what, yeah hold on say knowledge yeah the, that the pursuit of knowledge is, that knowledge is knowledge that is knowledge is more truly knowledge like we essentially what he is saying is that that knowledge the pursuit of knowledge and like the gaining of knowledge is more true and so therefore for it to be more true has more being yeah and it's like how does that make sense how does something like reason or knowledge or philosophy have more being like it is just oh it's just is more as a pleasure is more true has more being is more than but because that doesn't fit the conception of what we were establishing in the forms because the forms before were essences right they were the essences of things unpredicated that allowed things to be informed mm -hmm. within them so like a conception such as justice or and then everything descending from capital t truth what is like truly what truly is in and yeah. of itself right but then when we're talking about these things he's saying essentially that things that are immortal and do not change are now what we should consider to be forms because it, like the idea of like knowledge immutable mm -hmm. is is now has now possesses more being and is more true than the pleasures that you experience and so therefore it is it is it is well it is true it, it's not in a state of flux and it's like what because we we acknowledge that there are different forms of knowledge there are different like there are different there are varying kinds like there are skills there's practical wisdom right. and then there's the philosophical theoretical wisdom that we that we were talking about in terms of um what was it called shoot oh whatever so <laughs> the, the the greek term for that um and so which was like techni and epistemy uh yeah epistemy ah, I and, got so, it. <laughs> uh, and so the and so it's uh it's like, well, that doesn't really make any sense because now we're no longer talking about the essences of things unpredicated like originally, but now we're like, so anything that is changeless and is immortal. He definitely took a vacation. But <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> yeah. does that really make any sense? No, uh, it doesn't really. Again, it doesn't fit with what he was saying, what before. he was saying before. Okay. Um, do you have any questions? Before? Well, it's such a fine line. I think I'm understanding it. Yeah, I'm um, like he has I'm changed going his definition of form from from unpredicated, unpredicated, unpredicated being to something that is just changeless. Right. Okay. So, and I mean, it's, it's fine, one thing, but, but here's there. the thing: it's one thing to say that like reason he because originally he would say that reason cares for the whole of the body, right? That that mm -hmm. that fits with the middle sections, right? Because he's saying that reason is able to look and discern like things in their right order and determine what needs to be consumed and what doesn't, um, what ends to be pursued and what ends to not be pursued. And so, and so you feed reason that way. So it's not that it's bad that you eat food, right? Cause you need it. He's saying that you understand to not eat food in excess and that you understand that you are going yeah, to eat, you're all going that to consume, right? And then you are now going to go and have your reading time or, or your study or your contemplative time. And that you would make sure that things are balanced and well-ordered in, in, in harmony. But now we're saying he's like, Mm, your what you would denote originally as pleasures are not actually pleasures because once again he's he's still trying to exist within that dichotomy of like there has to be a one-to-one -one comparison between the city and the soul there has to be a one comparison between the pleasures and the forms and it's like uh it doesn't it's not it's not a puzzle piece it doesn't it doesn't really fit yeah so we're feeling that tension i i, I can see that yeah um i'm gonna try to read a, a section from julia annis um take okay. it away so the so the reading from Julianus, I would say, is he, she says that 
The arguments about pleasure are not the mistake they are often said to be. Plato is not making an obvious mistake when he claims that the pleasantness as well as the goodness of the just person's life is objectively superior, though philosophical training and insight may be needed to see this. So, like, as we're saying that you, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong to say that there are, there are things that are more pleasant, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Even though, again, I fundamentally disagree with Plato about even entering into the discussion about what is pleasant right. to begin with. <laughs> sure. If we disagree, it is up to us to argue and not just assert. The, that pleasantness can never be an objective matter. The arguments go wrong, rather, in their lack of caution. Claims about pleasantness which have some plausibility when applied to a whole life are incautiously extended to all cases of pleasure. Further, the unresolved tension between the practical and contemplative conceptions of the philosopher makes his role in these arguments questionable. What should be a claim about the worth of good practical reasoning is often mixed up with the claim about the value of eternal objects of knowledge. Plato recognized later that these arguments were too hasty and that he had not considered the nature of pleasure carefully enough. Hmm. So he actually does go back in a later work. and Timaeus? Says, uh, is it in the Timaeus? Yeah, I think so. It's kind of like the sequel-ish. Yeah, it is. This. I think it is in the Timaeus where he's like, ah, I didn't like that too much. So maybe he did take a vacation, but it just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't jibe, right? It doesn't, okay. it doesn't fit well. But however, I will come in and defend Plato in just a second. Well, we, we must, um, as we're, as we're coming up on the end here, I think we have to talk about this final conclusion. Yes, um, here we go. And, and I, I think... At least here, I, w- I was breezing by these pages like, yes, 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 because I, I really liked what he was saying, and it was kind of synthesizing a lot of what he had been getting at before. Yeah, did you have a particular quote? I mean, I really liked, it, it's it's towards the, the end, page 333 in the Penguin, um, <laughs> just in the Penguin. In the penguin. Um, but he says, can we possibly argue that it pays a man, again, back to that original language yes, of the yes. argument, mm-hmm. that it pays a man to be unjust or self-indulgent or do anything base that will bring him more money and power but make him a worse man? We can't. And how can it pay him to escape, this was the crazy one, how can it pay him to escape the punishment of wrongdoing by not being found out? If he escapes, doesn't he merely become worse? And if he's caught and punished, isn't the beast in him calmed and tamed and his humaner part set free? And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's the part you heard me like do yeah. some weird groan on the yeah, couch yeah. before. <laughs> because in, in my life, like everyone's wired a little differently. I hate getting in trouble. My brother seems to love it. You know, he just relishes in getting in trouble. Like he, he he's always out to just destroy things. Uh, or he was wow. when we were growing up. You know, we're, we're different now. But but for me, I've I've always been afraid of getting in trouble. I don't know why. It's just your your natures. But that put it in such an interesting, uh, put a a really cool spin on it. Like getting caught is an opportunity for your humaner side to be set free, and for that base wilder animal side of you to be nerfed. And isn't that a great thing? And I was like, oh, that's. I yeah. like that. I like yeah. that a lot. Um, I mean, like, who who in their right mind in 21st century America would say, well, it it's so much better to uh, to get caught for a crime you committed. Like, I feel like nobody would say that. It, even like even like some sort of religious, you know, priest, pastor, I feel like would say, yeah, I don't know. That'd be tough. Like, it, most people don't want to be caught. And, you know, being caught, you have to go to prison. And we think of consequences so quickly. And not about the opportunity to become a better person. And that's not even talking about the correction. Like, you know, our, our prisons maybe don't do the best job of, of correcting your mistakes and helping you to become that better person. But just the act of being caught corrects you. 
Yeah, it's it's so it's so interesting. Anyway, I I liked that, but I felt like that was a good small nugget that pretty much amplified the argument. But do you want to now? Yeah, no, build back out. No, exactly what you exactly what you said. I'm just gonna go right into that. Absolutely. Um, You know, so I think it's fair to be dissatisfied with the arguments of book eight and nine. Like, absolutely, I'm totally dissatisfied with it. I think they're (laughs) I think they're almost. I would almost even claim that they're nearly philosophically inept. Um, But (laughs) Um, I don't want to dismiss them because here's the thing is that the very Plato has completely redefined the very conception of, of, of what is justice. Right. And as it leads to happiness and he defines that as psychic harmony. Right. So wouldn't it, wouldn't it be, so wouldn't it also be true then that the very idea of what we would consider happiness is also going to be fundamentally changed. So, so, so what he's essentially saying is that because before we used to think that, you can just achieve happiness regardless of the moral source, right? We can just like, well, this is what's going to lead to happiness. This is what you just need to pursue these ends and you will be happy as a consequence or whatever that means. Plato is saying is that you have to fundamentally, I love this. You have to fundamentally change who you are as a person. Like your moral source has to be completely reevaluated and changed how you conceive of the world how you understand justice and truth and beauty and life all have to be fundamentally reevaluated change into this idea of psychic harmony. And then therefore the happiness and the pleasure that you experience as a result of that happiness will also be fundamentally changed. Mm. We're, so, and that's the, and that's kind of the weakness. The strength of his argument is also the weakness. It's a weird double-edged sword because he's engaging in the same, He's engaging in those in these in these terms such as pleasure and happiness, and and we see that as exposing a weakness in in terms of Thrasymachus's argument because he's using it in our terminology. However, fundamentally, what Plato is saying is that I he's like I flipped the script, I changed exactly how this is supposed to look, yeah. and so therefore your understanding of happiness is is independent now. So his his idea of happiness it almost. It almost sounds stoic if you take away the emotionless side of it and and just look at your happiness is not determined by an end being like a physical end no matter what your life circumstances yes if you can keep your soul ordered in this way that we've described and pursue these things in the order that they're meant to be pursued you can be happy no matter what the life circumstances. right he doesn't well he doesn't go yeah it's up to aristotle to take it to that to that end he doesn't he doesn't really yeah the more practical side of things but he basically what he's saying is that he's like we've changed our views of what essentially ju- what is essential to justice, which is that of psychic harmony and everything else that is bound up in what is creating psychic harmony. Um, and however, the good consequences that come out, see, and that's the thing. It's just, it's just a natural flow, right? The good consequences that come out of psychic harmony are, are good and are good consequences because of the thing that it is because of what psychic harmony is because of what justice is. Mm-hmm. Like it's natural. It's not, it is not an action that you then take and then it produces happiness. It is a state of being that you hold within yourself. And then the consequences will just flow forth from that. Yeah. And, and, but you wouldn't, but you as an unjust person or somebody who is middling in between will not be able to understand the good consequences that come out of being a just human being. You only get to experience them and understand them if you are just. Yeah. It is, it is fundamentally different like fundamentally and and that's why you start to see like 
the arguments in book eight and nine are actually the same arguments in the original books. They seem to be distinct. I know. I'm sorry. They, they seem to be distinct. But what he's essentially saying is that, look, like you, I have all these city soul parallels that I've established, all these bad societies and, the, and their corresponding character. Yes, there are weaknesses in the argument. And yes, I've, I've been talking about how, you know, there are, you know, different kinds of pleasure and like one, like some pleasures are more true than others. But the whole reason of, 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 the, of that whole breakdown is to demonstrate that your very understanding of what, what, of what would constitute, you know, goodness is going to be fundamentally morphed based on now the new moral stance that you have taken. And, and so all these other things will not, will not appear to be pleasurable anymore. It, everything has been changed. And then so I'm once again going to return to a quote to summarize here. We find the first part of the argument more convincing than the second, talking about book four through six or whatever. The difference between act and agent-centered theories of ethics, so here we are, is a deep one whose importance is recognized even if we do not follow Plato and his priorities. But we are inclined to dismiss book eight and nine. There are good reasons for being dissatisfied with the arguments. They are hasty and casual about pleasure and how it is related to happiness. And Plato is not nearly so concerned to show that his conclusions here do not outrage common sense, as he is in the case of justice. But paradoxically, as I pointed out, in spite of the weakness of the arguments, they are underestimated. They express a deep point which modern theories of ethics find hard to express. The point that the happiness and pleasure that can be got from a life of certain moral type is important ways is in important ways intrinsic to that life. Utilitarians prefer to think of pleasure as something that can be got indifferently from any moral source. Going back to those choices, act-centered. And so as something to be maximized and distributed to people, or sorry, agent-centered, regardless of what they are like. Plato's ideas here about pleasure, though not particularly well put, are more profound than anything to be found in any utilitarian theory. <laughs> I take it that writer doesn't like utilitarianism. Who does? <laughs> John Stuart Mill, maybe. Is it accented or agent-centered? I don't know. I have to think about it. That, that's super... Well, this has been a bit of a roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> my gosh. Yeah. Like, yeah, Plato's an idiot. No, I love him. Oh, my gosh. Well, I, yeah, it's... I, I wanted to I wanted to give... I, I think we've been too much on a being too kind to him a little bit. We're like, oh, he's great. And then I, I wanted to kind of like punch up a little bit punch above my weight class for a second no so, totally yeah, fair these are weak arguments but however i mean fundamentally different like mm -hmm. it, it is it is hard to yeah. philosophically speaking conceive of 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 how he's just his definitions are entirely different and we have to reorient our thinking when you approach him mm -hmm. so he's He's definitely crazy. <laughs> Absolutely. And he takes vacations, apparently. <laughs> so that's what we learned this week. We'll have to do the Timaeus then at yeah. some point. Oh, gosh. Yeah, maybe in, in like two years. <laughs> um, well, this has been fun. Uh, to next episode is the one on art. So that'll be um, an interesting... Uh, we could probably just... Why don't we just do the whole thing? Do yeah. the rest? Yeah, we'll just... Okay. Next, next episode, episode will be the last one. Well, we have one more episode of Plato's Republic, so certainly you'll want to stay tuned if you haven't already subscribed to our um, podcast on whatever medium you're you're listening to us on. Make sure you leave us uh, some good feedback. That always helps us, um, and, and um, uh, that would certainly encourage us to keep going with this. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or recommendations, feel free to email us at the, uh, the Academy Podcast at Outlook.com. Uh, we'd love to read them. Um, I would like to take your feedback uh, and your considerations and your recommendations. 
Um, and <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> yeah, uh, guys, we we surpassed, uh, we hit uh, two thousand downloads on the uh, on the podcast, so that's huge for us. We didn't think we were going to get that much attention. Um, we love all of you, and we're so thankful for uh, for your uh, listening um, and uh, just all your support. Um, yeah, and so we're going to be finishing up here on Plato's Republic and moving on to, uh, I wouldn't say bigger and better things, but I would just say other things. Other things. Cool. Yeah. All right. Take care, guys. Take care.